We're going to turn now to God's word, and we're in uh, Exodus chapter 20. We're going through the Ten Commandments. We're looking at the sixth of the Ten Commandments this morning. And uh, if you're not familiar with this portion of the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments are followed by several chapters of case laws that were given to ancient Israel alongside the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are kind of unpacked in these, you know, these different uh, instances that give an example of how to expand the, the Ten Commandments. So what we're doing each week is we look at the Ten Commandments and we dip into the case law that is associated with that Ten Commandments, that, that one commandment. And this week, as I read these passages, you're going to hear some things about uh, slavery, which... I imagine will be troubling for some of you, and you may have questions about the Bible's teachings about slavery, and I'm not going to talk about that this morning because in about a month and a half, I'm going to do a whole sermon on slavery in the Bible, and it needs more attention than I'm able to give this morning, so you just have to wait and come back, and you can hear about that, um, but uh, this passage has plenty to talk about besides slavery, so those are the things we're going to focus on this morning. So we're in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 13, and then we're going to skip over to, to Exodus chapter 21. So hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. In Exodus 21, starting in verse 12, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And skipping down to verse 18, when men quarrel and One strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed. Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, He is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so their children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, 
he shall be dealt with according to this, uh, to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. So often your word says things that we didn't know we needed to hear about. And uh, many portions of the book of your law feel this way. So we pray that your spirit would come and enlighten our minds to understand why you've said these words to us. Give us hearts to receive your word that it would uh, shape how we understand who you are and it would shape how we live. So we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So our sermon this morning is on murder. And uh, you might not think that's the most uplifting uh, topic for a Sunday morning. And actually, I was talking to my son, Will, who's 12. Last night, he asked me what the sermon was about this morning. And I said, you shall not murder. And he's like, well... Don't murder, don't hate people, amen. Is, is there much more to say than that? But, you know, I, actually earlier in the week, I was talking to another one of my kids, my daughter Molly, who's eight, and I, I play tennis with them a few, a couple mornings a week, uh, and we were on our way to play tennis, and kind of out of nowhere, she says, you know, I just can't believe how God made us, like how I think and I can do stuff, and I can't understand how it's possible I do any of that stuff. And then she says, Without God, I would just be nothing. And that's actually a really profound statement, that God makes things alive. All the life in this rich and colorful and beautiful world is because God is the Lord and giver of life. And actually, that same day I came home, and I have a little Lutheran prayer book that I I use for morning and evening uh, prayers. And the prayer that morning said these words, Without your power upholding me, I should be unable to live. That's exactly what Molly was saying. Without your power upholding me, I'd be unable to live. God is life. It is his love of life that connects the neurons in our brains and pumping our hearts and filling our lungs with air. It is his love of life that is keeping us going. And so to love God is to cherish all things living and especially to cherish the lives of his image bearers, human beings. And the Bible tells us, you know, when humanity lost relationship with God, you know what almost the first thing that happened was? Genesis chapter 4, Cain, who's the son of Adam and Eve, murdered his brother which means that being with God brings life and being apart from God brings death. And so this means that there is a depth and a breadth to this little commandment, you shall not murder. And so this morning, we're gonna try to understand some of the depth and breadth of what God has for us here by by seeing three things that this passage calls us to look at. To look at our hearts, to look at the vulnerable, and to look at Jesus. Three things this passage calls us you know, to understand the sixth commandment, to look at our hearts, to look at the vulnerable, and to look at Jesus. And the first of those is this, to look at our hearts. It's the place to start with this commandment. And you'll notice that in this passage I just read the law of Moses, 
makes a distinction, an important distinction between murder and manslaughter. So you saw that there in chapter 21, verse 12, where it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, which is another way of saying that it happened by accident, the person died by accident. You know, God, in his mysterious will, that's why this happened. Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar. And what that means about taking him from his altar is, you know, in some ancient cultures, if someone went into a temple after they'd killed someone, they couldn't be killed in the temple. And so they thought they could be safe in the temple. And the Lord says, no, someone murders someone and they think they can hide out in a temple. You drag them out of the temple and then there's going to be justice. They can't, you know, we don't do that in, in, in my law. And so you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And this distinction of, of between murder and manslaughter, of course, is recognized in our modern law code, that there's a difference between an accident and willfully attacking someone. And the thing that makes murder murder, what makes murder murder then, is your intentions. Murder starts in the heart. What were your desires? What did you mean to do? Did you want this person dead? Of course, you know, we live in a society where there are severe consequences for murdering someone. And so it doesn't happen often that, that someone is murdered. But that does not mean that the desire, the seeds of murder, are not in many people's hearts. And I, I want to share with you how I learned about the seeds of murder in my own heart. Um, I've, I've shared with many of you that as a teenager, I my parents had me sent away for a year and a half to a behavioral modification program in Western Samoa. It was this program. There were 300 boys that lived on the beach, and we slept on the floor in huts, and we cleaned all our clothes, washed all our clothes by hand. And every few months, there were these seminars that would come through to teach these boys about why were you on drugs, and why were you disobeying your parents, and why were you dropping out of school. And one of the in one of the seminars on the second day, they, we did an exercise. There was probably about 50 boys that were in a room about this size. And the facilitator turned off the lights and had us lie down, spread out throughout the room, and close our eyes. And he led us through this visualization. And in the visualization, we had won uh, one of those prizes at the mall where you can win a cruise. Except this cruise, you got to invite everyone that you loved in your life, and you brought them all in this boat. And, and it, the visualization takes you through this three-day process where you're having dinner and you're talking with people and you're being funny and everyone's laughing and it's just this great time with all these people that you love. And then each night you'd go into a deep, deep sleep and you know, you're just relaxing. And then the next day you do all these fun things on the cruise and you're hanging out with these people and you just feel like you're being yourself and everything's going well. And then that night you go into a deep, deep sleep. Now, on the third night, as we're going into a deep, deep sleep, we all have our eyes closed, and we're lying on this floor. All the facilitators come around us with pots and pans right by our ears. And they yell, shipwreck! And they start slamming these pots, and your heart almost stops. And they, set, they get up, and they say, the whole boat is sinking with all the people you love. And there's one lifeboat on it with three spots. And so we had to go to everyone in the room and vote whether you live or die. You only get three live votes. And as we'd go to each person and look them in the eyes and say, you die, the 
Someone would be right in your ear saying, that's what you said to your mom when you walked out of the house. You die. That's what you said to your dad when you shredded him with your words. You die. That's what you said to teachers and people in your life who cared about you and you just disrespected them. You die. You die. You die. And I was just sobbing, you know, snot coming out of my mouth and I was screaming, you die. And it was chilling to see this room full of teenagers. You see the anger and the, the rage and the shame of the way that we had, had treated people. Whole room of kids screaming, you die. I told everyone to die. I didn't use any you live votes. And then I finally, you died myself. And this was not a Christian program. And even these modern psychologists who had designed these seminars had realized there is murder in our hearts. And you might ask, you know, where does that kind of hatred come from that we would say to someone, you die, or we'd feel that towards someone? This passage has an interesting answer to that. If you look again at verse 14, it says, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, and that word willfully is usually not translated, that Hebrew word is not translated anywhere else that way in the, in the Old Testament. And it really means in pride. If someone kills someone in pride, pride is the thing that says you die to people. And actually, if you go to the book of 1 John in chapter 3, it talks about this story about Cain and Abel. And it says why Cain killed Abel. This is what it says. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain saw that Abel was better than him and he hated him for it. It was his pride, it was his self-importance, it was his conceit that led him to murder. And this is how pride thinks. Pride thinks things like this. Someone doesn't give me the respect that I think I deserve you die. Someone doesn't give me an opportunity that I should have had in my life to advance, you die. Someone doesn't give me the affection and the attention or the love that I think is owed me, you die. And what Christians have always recognized is that these seeds live in all of us. And maybe if you'd been born in a, you know, maybe a different family where those seeds had been cultivated, or you'd lived in a culture where those seeds had been cultivated, that the taking, taking another person's life is possible for all of us. And I, you know, I think it's always humbling, of course, to think back to, to the, the Germans in, uh, under the Nazis in the 30s. Many decent people who were in a certain context where those seeds were nurtured and became a nation of murder. So to understand the depths of the Sixth Commandment, we start by looking at our hearts. It's frightening what we see there. But this commandment doesn't just have a negative side to it. You know, don't you die, people. There's a positive side to it, too, which is about the protection of life. And that's our second point, is that the sixth commandment not only calls us to look at our hearts, but to look at the vulnerable, to see the vulnerable. And, you know, whenever we're studying the Ten Commandments, it's always important to remember who these laws were given to. And they were uh, given to the Israelites who for centuries 
had been oppressed and been slaves in the land of Egypt. And you might say, you know, why would God have his chosen people for 400 years living enslaved by the Egyptian people? Why would he do that? And I think uh, it appears in the Bible that maybe the reason that God had them as slaves for that long is so that they would know what it felt like to be an oppressed person. Because throughout God's law, he is always telling his people, remember you were slaves in Egypt. And you must not oppress people the way you were oppressed. You know what it is like to be vulnerable and to not be protected. And in this way, you know, the law of Moses, in countless ways, was a a massive innovation in the ancient world with regard to human, human rights. You know, the Bible regards all people, no matter their class, as made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect, and therefore their lives are worthy of protection. And you can see that in this passage. You see in verse 18 where it says, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So if you wound one of God's image bearers, you need to take responsibility for paying for any time that they've lost, caring for them for as long as that takes. But then it's interesting, you have all these principles of justice that are then applied to the lowest class in Israelite society, to slaves. You see it in verse 20 there. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. How many cultures in the ancient world do you think it was important to them to avenge the life of slaves? Or if you look again at uh, verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. And um, we'll see this when we study the the, the topic of slavery in a few weeks. But the laws in in the Book of the Covenant, the Mosaic Law, uh, are never aimed at slaves. The laws are always aimed at the slave owners. Because... The the Bible knows that the slaves are in a vulnerable class who need to be protected. And so they're directed to the people who have power and influence. And so we are called to protect the lives of the vulnerable in every class, the poor, the foreigner, the disabled. But also, you know, there's a sense in which this passage recognizes that we're actually all vulnerable people. And I'll show you what I mean. If you look at verse 28... It says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. So uh, if you know your animal is a danger to others, you have to do something about it. And now this animal is is just one example that says we are living in a wild world filled with dangers. And, you know, we are vulnerable. You and I, we have these soft bodies that are woundable, that are killable. 
You and I are killable. Some of you, you know, live in fear of that. I live in, like, I realize, I feel how soft and woundable I am. And so this commandment, you shall not murder, means we need a world filled with people who look out for each other. We are all vulnerable, and we, we need to watch. Hey, you better watch out, and I need to make sure you're protected. You need to make sure I'm protected. And this means the sixth commandment speaks to, you know, seat belts and um, airbags and, you know, traffic lights, the FDA and making sure our food is safe to eat and laws about safe medical practices. I mean, the application of the sixth commandment is, is you know, the applications are countless. And when we become aware that a person is vulnerable, we are responsible to take action that their life and safety are protected. And I have to say, there is one particular vulnerable class mentioned in this passage that's especially important for our generation. And you see it in verse 22. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay um, as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, etc. Now what these verses tell us is that if two men are fighting and they hurt a pregnant woman so that she delivers her baby or her babies, it says children, plural, the man will be liable for any harm that had been done to the child while it was in utero, all the way up to life for life. This tells us that both the killing of an unborn child is regarded as murder in biblical ethics and that unborn children are a vulnerable class of human beings who need to be protected by the law. I know that abortion is a huge topic in our culture. Maybe some of you have had an abortion. Maybe you have encouraged someone to get an abortion. This is a big topic that needs to be handled with care. If you want to learn more about this, I gave a, an extensive sermon about this in January 2016. You can look it up on the internet. But the thing we have to say from this passage is that unborn children are a vulnerable class and they need to be protected by the law. And I know that some of you might say, you know, maybe if you're coming from a more liberal perspective, you say, well, aren't women a vulnerable class who needs to, to be protected as well? And we'd say, absolutely. I spend a lot of time talking about that in that sermon. But we can't protect one vulnerable class by hurting another. And one of the things uh, that shows us is that the Bible's vision of human ethics, human flourishing of life is so broad and beautiful that none of our ideologies really capture it. I mean, if you read through the law of Moses, is it liberal or is it conservative? Well, when you read about the legal codes caring for the poor and the marginalized and the immigrants, you might think, well, that sounds like some of the most important liberal convictions. When you hear about just punishments and you hear about protecting the unborn, you might think that sounds conservative. We all have pet virtues that we think are the most important, but none of us, none of our ideologies come close to the beauty of God's character expressed in the law of God. And that is why to understand the depths of you shall not murder, it's not enough to look at our own hearts. 
It's not even enough to look at the vulnerable classes that need to be protected. But ultimately, we need to look to a person. And that's our last point, is that we must look at Jesus. You know, I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, someone asked me how I could believe in the Bible, and the Bible has so many contradictions in it. And the example they gave of a contradiction was from this passage, from uh, verse 23, where it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And they said, okay, the Bible says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but then Jesus later says that you should turn your other cheek. If someone hurts you, you don't get eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You turn your other cheek. Now, which is it? Well, the answer, of course, to that question is these talk about two different areas of human life. When you have a law code in a nation, it needs to be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If someone steals a piece of candy, you don't cut their hand off. The punishment should match the crime. That's an important part of justice. You want to live in a nation that believes that. And yet, in your personal relationships, you have an obligation to forgive people. You can't constantly be living eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in your personal relationship. God wants us to be merciful and caring. These are two different areas of human life. There's no contradiction whatsoever. But these two verses do um, reflect two different aspects of God's character, his justice and his mercy. And that does raise the question, how do God's justice and mercy come together? How can God be both just, you know, punishing the wicked, and merciful, forgiving, letting the the wicked, you know, be washed and forgiven? How does he do both of those? Um, Because as we think about murder, we find that we all have elements of you die in our hearts. We find that the Pride, a pride in us that would tear others down um, if they were any kind of threat to our sense of self-importance. We see we don't care for the vulnerable, and we are a part of a culture that has the death of children everywhere. Death and murder and hate are all around us. How does that not just drown us in shame? The answer is we look to Jesus, and specifically we look to Jesus on the cross. On the cross, we see two things. First, on the cross, Jesus was murdered. The greatest crime in the history of humanity is that the beautiful Son of God, the Lord of life, came to us with healing in his wings. He came with words of grace. He came looking to the vulnerable. He came with compassion. The purest human life there ever was, and we murdered him. And he didn't murder back. He didn't call an army of angels to kill us all. He took it. He absorbed the murder. Like a lamb going silently to the slaughter. He turned the other cheek. But if you think about turning the other cheek, what does that mean? Why do you turn your cheek to someone? So they kiss you. He came turning his cheek towards us so that we would kiss him. And we didn't just slap him. We crucified him. And still to this day, he opens his other cheek to us. To every murderer, to every person possessed by pride and envy and hatred and bitterness, Jesus bids you to let down your pride and anger and to kiss his other cheek, to not slap him again. And so on the cross, Jesus was murdered. He absorbed murder to win us with forgiving love. But he did even more on the cross than be murdered. But also on the cross, Jesus was a murderer. He became the murderer. 
You know, this passage says that if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. The punishment of murder is execution. Actually, if you read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you know that when Jesus was crucified, there were two robbers that died on either side of him. And the word for robber is actually used another place in the Gospels where there was a man who was a robber, who was a rebel, a murderer named Barabbas, who was sentenced to die. And Pontius Pilate came to the crowds and he said, well, who do you want me to set free to? You want me to set free Jesus or you want me to set free Barabbas? And they said, we want Barabbas. And he said, what are we going to do with Jesus? Crucify him. And so Jesus went and took Barabbas's cross. That was the murderer's cross, who deserved to die on that cross. He became the murderer. He went into the murderer's place so that the murderer could be washed, could be forgiven, could be welcomed, even into God's own family. This is the beautiful love of our God. Only in Jesus do mercy and justice come together in perfect harmony. He absorbs the murder and love. He turns the other cheek in mercy. And he dies for the murder and love so that life for life has been paid. The crime has been paid for in full. And it is out of this perfect love and justice that we see the first sign of a life that is finally indestructible. He's raised from the dead and murder can touch him no more. And he gives us the promise of a kingdom with no more murder where he will share with us that indestructible life. And so this commandment, you shall not murder, is more than a law that makes us see the pride in our hearts. It's more than a command even to see and to care for the vulnerable. It is a pointer that leads us to the Savior, the only one with the power and the love to finally give us a world where murder is no more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word of truth. We praise you that your word comes to us with justice, severe justice, and unending mercy. And we praise you that they come together in the person of our Lord. Soften, quiet the murder that's in our hearts as we behold him dying in our place. We praise you that you have washed us and you love us. So we receive this truth in faith and hope of your mercy and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.